Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And did I ever tell you about this one time I look out of the window and this big bright moon, they look back at me and I look down at the street and who's there but a Josh. And it's a Josh's moon. And I say, moon, you want to go see some people? And the moon says, no, I don't want to see some people. I say, moon, you want to go to the movie theater? And the moon says, no, I don't want to go to the movie theater. That's where the people are. I say, moon, you want to go have some fun? And the moon says, no, I don't want to have a fun. I say, moon, why do you hate everything? And the moon says, why do I hate everything? Because I'm Josh's moon. That was very long, and I wasn't <laughs> sure where that was going to end up. But I was nice. inspired by playwright John Patrick Shanley to go on a monologue of my own to start this one. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, there are excellent monologues. There are great, uh, just great dialogue overall in this film. In this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1987, and we're here at my pick, and that is Moonstruck from director Norman Jewison and screenwriter John Patrick Shanley. And uh, I love this movie. And it is a beloved movie. It's not like some some of my picks are, were, you know, more personal, lesser known films. But I feel like this is an almost universally beloved movie. But did you love my homage to it for you, Josh? That is probably not universally <laughs> beloved, but I did appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Well, it's a very, uh, very loving tribute there. Yes. You hate everything. And the moon, since it's yours, has to hate everything. I see. I see that. Yes. But I don't hate this movie. I love this movie. This is a great movie. And uh, like I said, I think uh, this is a movie that that almost everyone seems to enjoy or everyone who sees it. It was a big success at the time that it was released. It Made a lot of money at the box office, grossed $122.1 million on its budget of $15 million, and it was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, uh, also Best Director for Norman Jewison, and Best Supporting Actor for Vincent Gardinia, and it won three of those Oscars, including Best Actress for Cher, Best Supporting Actress for Olympia Dukakis, and Best Original Screenplay for John Patrick Shanley nominated for five Golden Globes, won two of those, four BAFTAs. I mean, this is a movie that just was a, a hugely successful film. Josh, you know how we sometimes talk about these murderer rows of uh, uh, nominees. Listen to who Cher beat in 1987 for that Best Actress Oscar. Glenn Close, Fatal Attraction. Holly Hunter, Broadcast News. Meryl Streep, Ironweed. Sally Kirkland, Anna. Like legends. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because we talk about now, at least, how comedies have a really hard time getting award nominations, let alone winning. And this is a movie that is very comedic. I mean, it's not like some of these movies now that get nominated for like the Golden Globe for best comedy. And it's like, oh, that maybe had one joke in it or something. I mean, this is a very funny movie and it's heartfelt, but it's not really super serious at any moment. So even more impressive that she could get the Oscar for such a comedic performance. Well, Josh, if you believe in life after love, you can pretty much do anything you want. Yeah, she hadn't gotten to that yet, though. That was later. So uh, she was just, uh, I don't know. I she found someone another to, share song. She found someone to take away the heartbreak and it was herself. There you go. That's one, too. All right. <laughs> I feel like this is what was the episode where you were just naming uh, all the that titles was of, Listomania, of the Who that songs? Was, yeah, yeah, but share. I mean, come on, that's an icon. And Josh, I'm excited to tell the audience you will have an exclusive interview with Share later in this episode. No, no, I will not. But thank you for uh, just completely lying right there. <laughs> stay tuned. If we could, for if we could turn back time, I would have you not say that. <laughs> so stay tuned for Josh's interview with Share. No interview with Cher, unfortunately, but uh, Cher is fantastic in this film. I mean, well-deserved for that Oscar, I think. I haven't seen all of those other films that those performances were nominated from, but she's excellent in this movie. Everyone's excellent in this movie, bro. 
That is true. That is true. All of those awards and nominations are well-deserved. Audiences love this movie. It got an A- from CinemaScore, which is the audience polling service. And critics loved it too. Got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, who were both very, very enthused and predicted in their review some Oscar nominations. They especially had a lot of praise for John Patrick Shanley, who at the time was not known in the film world, at least. He was a playwright, and this was his first screenplay. And Siskel and Ebert, at least, didn't seem to even know about his background at all, and were just amazed that this guy had kind of come out of nowhere to write this film. And uh, they were correct with their prediction of his Oscar nomination and, in fact, Oscar win. And in his review, Roger Ebert said, the most enchanting quality about Moonstruck is the hardest to describe, and that is the movie's tone. Reviews of the movie tend to make it sound like a madcap ethnic comedy, and that it is. But there is something more here, a certain bittersweet yearning that comes across as ineffably romantic, and a certain magical quality that is reflected in the film's title. This is an ensemble comedy, and a lot of the laughs grow out of the sense of family that Jewison and Shanley create. In its warmth and in its enchantment, as well as in its laughs, this is the best comedy in a long time. So Siskel had this at number six on his top ten of the year. Ebert had it at number five. And there definitely is that familial sense. You could definitely, you know, if you were walking down the street and you saw all these people together, you would assume they were a family. Right. Yes. And uh, that is the magic of acting. Oh, interesting. uh, Did Cher teach you that? She did. I learned so much from her. Um, No, you're right. I wanted to spring up one thing because, you know, at this time, Danny in the Deep Blue Sea, uh, which was Shanley's kind of breakout play, was already a thing. You know, that was that was in 1983. So I'm surprised that they just thought he came out of nowhere. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe they knew. I don't know what knowledge they had per se. I just watched this segment and they don't mention any of his background as a playwright. And because the internet didn't exist then, if it wasn't in like the movie's press kit, they might not have known about it. They're in Chicago and not in New York. I'm not sure. But you're saying a podunk town like Chicago wouldn't know what the big city like New York had going on. I mean, they might not have gone to New York and seen that play or 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 you heard his name or anything. I don't know. The point is that they don't mention it in in that segment. Maybe they just thought their audience wouldn't uh, know or care about plays. I can't say. But either way, I mean, this still is his first produced screenplay, and it's still a a very impressive debut for someone in terms of their first film. I would agree. But it also helps that, you know, not just the cast, but that he had a master director working with him. Right. I mean, Jewison is... uh, excellent craftsman. We talked about him in a very different film when we talked about In the Heat of the Night. And he's one of these directors who worked in so many different genres and just brought this level of professionalism to whatever he did. And I think that's probably what you want as a first-time screenwriter, someone who can take that screenplay and deliver it as, as smoothly as possible to the screen. Yes, Josh. As a screenwriter, you would want a good director. Right. Well, I think also just, I mean, an experienced director, someone who can take a screenplay from a first time writer and know exactly how to properly bring that to the screen. And if you if you look at the, you know, the craftsman beyond just him, you know, you look at the editor and the director of photography, these are all masters of their craft. So he he was working uh, with big league players here. Right. I mean, he couldn't have asked for something better for his first film. Uh, Sheila Benson in the Los Angeles Times, also very enthused. She said, as a young widow whose life suddenly shifts 180 degrees under the spell of an extraordinary full moon, Cher finally has a role that lets her comic sensibilities out for a romp. Pitted against some of the best character actors anywhere, Cher drops with a Brooklyn Italian lilt into a juicy romantic comedy character as though she'd been brought up in the neighborhood. Moonstruck is such nourishing comedy. It satisfies every hunger, especially the irrational ones that seem to hit hardest at holidays. Hunger for impetuous romance and for the reassuring warmth of family, for reckless abandon and for knowing who we are and what we want. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, there are definitely, I mean, and Shanley, you and I both watched Joe versus the Volcano last night together. You called me (laughs) up and you said, 
you want to do some sex to each other? I said, no, let's watch Joe versus the volcano. And we did that. And it was probably better, Josh, because I just see you as a friend. Uh, but I appreciate the offer. Anyway, uh, even with the moon, even with my moon <laughs> that you have witnessed, <laughs> well, that, that almost moonstruck. That almost helped because your moon hates everything, and as you know, I am attracted to people who are repulsed by me. Um, mm-hmm. So excellent, but um, no, I think I think Shanley is very good at um, if you just even take these two pieces. One, he clearly defines characters, and not just main characters like. These like supporting players have such, I mean, they're great actors, but they have heaters of like dialogue, just really chunky, juicy dialogue to get into. And then the other thing is he's very clear with his theme throughout the movie play, whatever it is. So, you know, this whole idea of love, what it means, how it means same and different things to different people, I think is, is really expertly done in his writing. Yeah, it is. I mean, this movie is, I mean, it's a romantic comedy. But it definitely captures what Sheila Benson is talking about there, the, the the sense of the kind of larger than life sense of romance, right? I mean, this is a movie where these characters fall in love at first sight, essentially, which is not really how that works. But because it has this almost fairy tale quality, you buy into it and it feels like this great romance. And some of those monologues, especially Nick Cage, when he's trying to get Cher to come back with him. For their second rendezvous and he's you know talking about how like love and life isn't supposed to be perfect we're people and we mess things up and you know make things worse and then we die like it's just like you know as an actor that's what you look for just those big moments that you can really sink your teeth into like i said and i think you know he's back now we all know this but he killed it in this thing oh yeah he's fantastic i mean like you said everyone is really really good Cher and Nicolas Cage as the main stars of this, but all through the supporting cast, even smaller parts, because of the material that Shanley gives them and the actors all step up and do amazing work, even with the with the smallest parts. It's nice when you get a movie that has that base and everyone builds on it and the sum is greater than the already great parts. Yes. Yes, indeed. So uh, one more praise from a critic Rita Kempley in the Washington Post said Moonstruck is a great big beautiful valentine of a movie an intoxicating romantic comedy set beneath the biggest brightest Christmas moon you ever saw it's a monster moon a Moby Dick of a moon whose radiance fills the winter sky and every cranny of this joyous love story talking about Cher and Cage she says They're an irresistibly offbeat couple. Cage playing on the edge where he likes it. Cher creating a fairy tale realist, captivating yet cautious. He looks like the bastard son of Mama Celeste and Wiley Coyote. And she, as the camera romances her Mediterranean features, is Mona Lisa in heavy mascara. The atmosphere is as rich and piquant as a taste of Spumoni, and the spirit is as flamboyantly Italiano as that of Pritzi's honor. Hmm. But I wouldn't say Mama Celeste is very uh, Italian. Well, right. And I kind of wonder, I've never seen Pritzi's Honor, but I kind of wonder how Italian Pritzi's Honor is either. And I wonder if what she's saying is that this is a love, a wonderfully sort of cartoony version of Italianness, which is the way it kind of seemed to me, too. Well, OK, they this is a family from Brooklyn, right? They all live in yeah. Brooklyn, uh, different generations of immigrants. But let's say that share. And uh, Nick Cage are, let's say, born in America. I mean, this is this is Italian American, right? You have these, uh, especially in New York and you know, New Jersey, where I grew up. Josh, these oh, bigger, <laughs> these bigger than life characters. They're very animated. They talk with their hands. There's uh, very few quiet moments, you know. So everything's emotionally driven. So I didn't even feel it was cartoonish. I felt it was just a different. Uh, subsect of people that uh that i knew right i mean i guess maybe cartoonish is the wrong word for it but but somewhat exaggerated like everything else in the film i mean it's not to me a negative or a criticism per se you know the love the romance as i was just saying it's all very big it's all very exaggerated it's not you know if these were real people who fell in love this way and decided to get married this way you would stop them and say whoa 
what are you doing? You're crazy. Don't do this. But in the context of the movie, it's beautiful and it, it draws you in and all that. And I mean, there's this sort of magical realist sense with all the stuff about the moon and whatever. So I think it fits. But that was why I liked her mention of like Mama Celeste, which if, if you don't know, is the uh, frozen pizza <laughs> that uh, has the little picture of the old Italian lady on it, which I ate all through my childhood. So I appreciated that. Reference. Not anymore. You're not eating it anymore. No, I eat different frozen pizza these days. What's your go-to now? Uh, Red Baron or DiGiorno, usually. Uh, this is, uh, mm. I go, I go, I like Trader Joe's. You know, they got a nice variety and it's a little more uh, artisanal, Josh. Ah, yes, artisanal. That's good. That's what you want in your frozen pizzas. But I mean, the point to me is that like, it's the Italian of frozen pizza. It's not the Italian of Italy necessarily. Yes, it's not a godfather too. We're not going back to Italy. You're right. No, no. I mean, we do briefly see Danny Aiello's character in Italy at the deathbed of his mother. But um, yeah, I'm sure they didn't shoot that. That's true. Are you saying this is like Mamma Mia? I yeah, I mean, Mamma Mia is not actually Italian in any way, I don't believe. Is it Greek? I don't even know. Yeah, they go to they it takes place on a Greek island. It does have share in the second one. Right. uh, Right. Briefly. But but yeah, I mean, it's Italian like Mario, you know, that kind of stuff uh, to to use a reference that Dave will appreciate. Um, (laughs) And again, I don't think that that's bad. I think that that's that's what it's going for. But it was interesting, you know, watching that Siskel and Ebert segment, too. And Siskel starts talking about, you know, how authentic it feels. And he says, well, you know, Norman Jewison isn't Italian and John Patrick Shanley isn't Italian, but they really have captured this. And then he goes like, well, I'm not Italian either. And you realize, well, Siskel doesn't really know what he's talking I, about here. Like I said, I mean, this feels like a neighborhood in New York and it takes place in Brooklyn Heights. I think that it is accurate to that. And uh, Vincent Gardinia, who lived in Brooklyn for about 30 years, has a street named after him out there. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there it is more authentic, as you're saying, to that sort of second or third generation. Yeah, Italian-American. Right, exactly. Red sauce, baby. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Jason, so did you you see this movie like as a kid or when it came out? No, at the age of seven, I was not in the uh, movie theater. But, you know, I wanted to talk to you about that one review real fast where they said it's, uh, I think, you know, we we especially now because this is taking place after the summer of Barbenheimer, Josh where release dates are so important. I think they nailed it with this release date because it came out in December of 87, caught a wave right away, right into award season. But also you got Valentine's Day. Like it was like a perfectly released film. And I think that's one of the reasons that it did such bang up business. I saw it uh, five, 10 years ago. Who knows? You know, when you're looking back at the classics that you missed, I saw it then. I liked it then. I like it now. And that's where I'm at. Yeah, I mean, uh, in reference to that release date thing, like as we heard, two of those reviews that I quoted mentioned Christmas, and this was a Christmas release. And in their segment, Siskel and Ebert mentioned that they're going to be talking in that episode about big holiday releases. So even though the movie doesn't take place at Christmas, but it does have that sort of holiday warmth. Yeah, that feel good. Let's go take the whole family and you know enjoy it. Right. And that's why I'm saying I feel like at seven years old, you probably could have seen this movie. I mean, it's not so risque or it's something that, you know, families might have all gone to together is possible. It is possible. You're right. So I didn't see it then either, though. Um, In fact, I had not seen this movie until like last year when I watched it because I was doing a roundup of notable Nicolas Cage movies. And that was one of his major roles that I had not seen. And I thought I would check it out. And I don't know, maybe I just hadn't really paid attention to what it was like, but I came into this movie thinking, oh, this is just going to be kind of like a cute rom-com. And what I love about this movie is it's really weird too. And I think that's what's so fantastic is like the humor is so offbeat. The dialogue, as we were saying, is great, but is also just sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of strange. And the whole plot, the idea of them falling in love at first sight and, you know, how that plays out, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. But it's kind of bizarre, too. And I love that about it. Was it first sight or was it first day? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not necessarily first sight. I mean, you see her come into the the shop or whatever, the bakery where where Ronnie, Nicolas Cage's character works. And when she first enters, she doesn't seem to have any reaction and nor does he. But it's within 
a few minutes. They they talk for a few minutes and then they go up to his apartment to talk further and then it kind of just happens. Well, so she made a quickly. she made a mistake, Josh. Come on. Uh, she did. What uh in this Nicolas Cage roundup where you're watching things that maybe you hadn't seen before, were there any other ones that you hadn't seen that jumped out at you? No, I mean I I only watched I think I didn't have a huge amount of time and so I was kind of watching what was available to stream at that time. And I think the only other one that I watched was Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, the Werner Herzog film, which is interesting, but I think it didn't ultimately make it on my list of the the best Nicolas Cage movies to stream, but this one certainly did. Yeah, my discovery of Nicolas Cage movies from a few years ago of ones that I hadn't seen was Valley Girl. I love Valley Girl. It's so good and he's great in it. Yeah, and I actually haven't still haven't seen that one. So that's another one I should Oh my God. You call yeah. yourself a movie podcaster. Dave, you ever seen I, Valley Girl? I haven't. I, I've always wanted to. God, I got to. We're going to have to do 1983 just so I can educate you lunks. I look nice. forward to that. I'm I'm happy to see that. I think I called so, you a uh, mix of lumps and lunks there. That's how that's how upset you guys made me. You lumps. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you had such passion for Valley Girl. The best usage of modern English's melt with you that I've ever heard on a movie. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Dave, had you seen Moonstruck before this as a kid, maybe? Uh, no. Last year was also the first time I had seen it. And uh, if you remember, it showed up on both of our first time watches list last year over on Piecing It Together. Ooh, I, like I think that's that. the first time we ever had an overlap on that. The, yeah, that's true. And that's such a weird thing because that's like every movie that has ever been made that could possibly be on that <laughs> list. And we yeah. picked this one. You guys got any yeah, very uh, random any teases for this year's? What do you think is going to end up? One one movie that you've watched this year, you think is going to end up on that list for you? Uh, well, you know, to keep it awesome movie year, I watched uh, you know Ross McElwee's Time Indefinite when we talked about Sherman's March in our last episode, and I think that could make it. That's good, Dave. Uh, at least one Ken Russell movie. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, yeah. awesome guess. movie year providing us with so much. Yeah, yes. I have one, but I'll go a different route. I'll go with Dirty Harry because that movie. Slaps, baby. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention on the background of uh, Moonstruck, Jason? Josh, uh, did you know that the original title was The Bride and the Wolf? That's a less good title. (laughs) Not as good. All right, Josh. Thank you for helping out there. Um, How about that Nicolas Cage was inspired by Rudolph Klein? Is it Roche from uh, Metropolis, Fritz Lang's movie? He was going for that style of acting. What do you think of that? No, I, I can see that. I mean, he has a very, I mean, I think it fits, but there are definitely times when it seems like he's doing a style of acting that no one else in this film is doing. And that's often the case with Nicolas Cage. And I think it's good because the character is supposed to be this sort of like oddball out of whack kind of person, but I could see him being influenced by very demonstrative silent movie acting. Yeah. Norman Jewison said it's his favorite film that he's directed. Oh, that's. I mean, he's had quite a varied career, as we keep saying. So uh, that's that's a pretty impressive distinction, really, from him. Well, you can ask Cher about it when we come back with your interview with Cher. This is really going to be disappointing. Instead, <laughs> we're going to come back with more of our general thoughts on Moonstruck. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we're talking about my pick, which is Norman Jewison's Moonstruck. And I think we all liked it, which is nice. It's uh, nice to pick a movie that everyone will enjoy. And uh, Jason, you liked it? I do like it. I still like it. It's a good movie, good characters, uh, fun set pieces. Josh, what is that? Because right, I mentioned we also watched uh, Joe versus the Volcano. This guy loves the moon, huh? <laughs> he does. And uh, I mean, that, that's it. Okay, the moon is cool. I'm good with the moon, right? Well, I mean, yeah. he's not like Roland Emmerich who hates the moon and wants it destroyed. <laughs> he's right? not trying to take the moon down. You it's know. not Moonfall. Yeah, that guy. That guy. He's the anti-Shanley, isn't he? So. Right. In in many ways, really. <laughs> I I felt uh, you know we know he is more known as a playwright. I I'm surprised that they haven't adapted this to a stage play. This feels like it could be a really good stage play. I told you yesterday I had read that they're adapting it into an opera and uh, Shanley is um, writing a libretto for it. So that's cool. But I feel like 
this is a great stage play. And that last uh, sequence um, in the kitchen where all the characters convene and spoilers come in right here, uh, Ronnie asks Loretta to marry him. He worked it out as one would work out a scene in a stage play. So all the blocking, all the rehearsing, all the character work was done before they brought in any of the crew. And then they shot it, shot it. He said it was the toughest scene he's ever filmed as well. And Jewison. that's Norman Jewison saying Jewison, that? Yeah. 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 I mean, that definitely that sequence certainly feels like it could have been taken from a stage play. And I think you're right that this could be pretty easily adapted that way. I think it's great to make it an opera. Of course, opera is a central theme in this film. Ronnie, Nicolas Cage's character, you know, he has that kind of dichotomy because on the one hand, he's a bit brutish and brooding. He's got this kind of Marlon Brando quality or whatever. But on the other hand, he loves opera and he's very sophisticated in his understanding of it. And after their night of passion, when Cher Loretta, she decides that uh, she can't possibly be with him. He says, just one thing, just come to the opera with me. And of course, then it's, it's all over there. But that's, that's his, uh, his sort of pitch to her, right? And the two things that he loves are her and the opera. And they go to the Met to see La Boheme and which I've actually seen La Boheme at the Met, Whoa. but uh, at the I Met you saw it at the Met. Yeah, when I was in college, wow. I took a How I took a trip. <laughs> was uh, some uh, school sponsored trip to New York, and we did a bunch of stuff, including going to see. Or actually, it was uh, that was on a different trip. It was part of a music class I took in college. That was what it was, and we we took a trip to see La Boheme at the Met. And uh, yeah, it was cool. I mean, that's the only time I've ever seen opera live, but I would be down for seeing Moonstruck the opera. Mm. What, uh, what else did you see on this trip? No, I think that was just that. I was thinking of, a, it was a different trip where it was just a general trip and we went to like some museums and Central Park and stuff. But uh, seeing, seeing La Boheme was, uh, was for a music class that I took. God, it must be nice to be so, such a rich college boy, Josh, going on gallivanting trips to the big city. <laughs> Well, my dad lived in New York City at that time, too. So I also uh, went and visited him there. So was that part of the requirements of the trip? It was. Yes. Go go to Central Park, go to a museum and go visit a family member. See Roger. Really, yeah, that was that was what it was. So uh, but yeah, La Boheme. Great. Of course, uh, La Boheme, also the source material for Rent, which was a movie directed by Chris Columbus. Right. La Vivo M is the famous song from there. Um, Josh, I think, you know, we always do these, um, the, these kind of fun alt castings, but I think they nailed this one. I mean, Peter Gallagher was the name that the studio wanted as Ronnie and Cher insisted that it was Nick Cage and, uh, Sally Field was going to be, uh, bandied about as Loretta and the two for Rose, which was played by Olympia Dukakis were Anne Bancroft and Maureen Stapleton. All talented actors, but I think they just nailed this thing. Yeah, I mean, especially like I like Peter Gallagher, but to think of him playing that role versus Nicolas Cage, I mean, Nicolas Cage is so distinctive here. And I think the movie is great for a lot of reasons, as we've said, but Cage's performance is one of the key elements. And if you had a more subdued sort of quote unquote normal performance in that role, I don't think it would work as well. There were two things that... um you know, I'm a stickler, Josh. And two things kind of took me out of it a little bit. One, you know, the first scene is Johnny proposing uh, to Loretta, right? And in that scene, she says, hey, you got to get down on your knees and do this the right way uh, because uh, I believe in bad luck. And this will like kind of, uh, you know, this will take away that bad luck, right? So, Based on that, the next scene we see is her at the airport and she's talking to this old woman and this old woman says that she put a curse on the plane that Johnny's going on. And she says, I don't believe in curses, but that's a very minute distinction that you would believe in bad luck so strongly, but you wouldn't believe in curses. And then at the end, when Ronnie proposes to her, he does not get on his knees. And I feel like she made the one brother do it. Why wouldn't she make the other brother do it? Well, in reference to that, I think the whole point of her storyline with Ronnie is she keeps telling him, I have bad luck, I have bad luck, and he convinces her to not care about that anymore. Part of her bad luck, too, is she believes that because she held out for love with her first husband, 
and married him for love. And then he died after they were married for two years. He got hit by a bus. She believes that her bad luck is in trying to find another man that she loves. And that's why she agrees to marry Johnny, who she doesn't love, but is just kind of this safe, boring guy. And she'll get married to him. And she doesn't want to fall in love with Ronnie, not only because she's engaged to his brother, but also because she believes that falling in love is part of her bad luck. And he convinces her to disregard that. So I feel like that by the time that he asks her to marry him, which is in that final scene, she's already thrown out her concern over bad luck. Hmm. That's a good explanation. So she really did find someone to take away the heartache. She did. (laughs) Uh, Olympia Dukakis has that great line in there when she's talking about uh, when she says, when Loretta says she's going to marry Johnny and she says, do you love him? She says, no. And she goes, do you like him? And she says, yeah. And she explains the difference, why it's easier to marry someone you like as opposed to someone you love. And we see that she's going through those issues because her husband is having an affair. And that kind of brings up that really, I think, effective subplot in the restaurant where we see John Mahoney's character, who's a older professor who always trying to date his uh, students, his college students. And Everyone says uh, they're too young for you. And Olympia Dukakis says they're too young for you. And they have this nice dinner and they're just talking about life. And I thought that was some of the best stuff in the film. Yeah, I love that stuff. And that's the kind of thing, too, that you could imagine some sort of studio executive saying, why is this yeah, in the movie? Cut, cut, cut this out. out, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's great. It, it absolutely belongs in there. And and you love it. I love it, too, because, you know, there's a certain point where you think, OK, Vincent Gardenia is having this affair and she's upset about it. And here is this college professor guy and he's good looking and he's nice and they have this dinner together and they seem to hit it off. She's probably going to try to have a fling with him. And that's what he assumes, too. But no, she just wants to have this nice dinner and talk to somebody and have a good conversation. And she doesn't even consider the idea that she could sleep with this guy. She just says, I'm married. That's why. There's no other obstacle there. I'm married and I honor my marriage. And that's what's important. And and I did love that about it. And and also John Mahoney, of course, is a great actor. And you really believe that character and you understand his own, you know, he has his own angst. He could easily just be like a douche who, uh, you know, chases after younger women, not only younger women, but his students in this, you know, obviously unethical kind of way. But you understand that he has his own melancholy. And I love the line where uh, he's trying to kind of get with Olympia Dukakis and she says, I'm too old for you. And he says, I'm too old for me. And that really gives you a sense of like sort of what his own existential crisis is, is feeling his own aging. Yeah. She says to him, you're a little boy and a baby or something like that at one point. And that was pretty good. uh, A sick burn, but also very accurate to how he was acting. Right. Yeah. He's, he's, He's very immature. But on the other hand, he has that kind of other sophistication as this college professor and you know he's intellectual and kind of worldly and it's an interesting contrast that's going on there yeah and um mahoney you know he's a character actor who's best known for fraser but i feel like every time we see him in something he as they say maximizes his minutes right he's always he always delivers on screen yeah we talked about him when we did our episode on uh say anything i think right, right? and yeah i agree he's excellent I just recently watched uh, Eight Men Out, the John Sayles film, which is from 1988 uh, for an article. And he's really, really good in that movie as the coach of uh, the the Black Sox in that film. Well, I got this uh, good quote about uh, Feodor. Uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but I think it's uh, Shaliapin. Does that sound right to you? I would butcher it, too. So I'll let you do it. I'm trying. Feodor Shaliapin Jr., who plays the old man, the grandfather, where they were thinking about casting him and i think jewison or i don't know one of the one of the either creators or cast members called sean connery and asked about him and he said he's great but he will steal the show and he does every scene that he's in right well right he does i mean he's he's excellent but i think you know the thing about sean connery is not that he would just steal the show and that he would give a He'd good steal performance. it from him right of course right Right. Yeah. Everyone would just pay attention to Sean Connery. So, no, I love that old man. And I know I think, Dave, that was your favorite character, right? Because you want to be the old man with all the dogs someday. He, he's my idol. Yeah, he's that's my future. Yeah, you need a, you <laughs> yeah. need You need to have a son so you can say you pay for the wedding. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's great. And he's just kind of in the background there. And, you know, he sees uh, Olympia Dukakis out with John Mahoney and just gives her this look. And as you said, right, he has this idea of disapproving of uh, the fact that Vincent Gardenia doesn't want to pay for Cher's wedding because she already had one wedding. And, you know, when she tells her parents she's getting married, their reaction is just like, why? Why bother? What are you doing? You're 37. There's no point anymore. There's a good scene when Loretta and uh, Ronnie are at the opera. That whole sequence is great, especially, you know, the, the one thing I noted is just how they were able to build this story. And I don't even want to call attention, but this upswell of emotion they're standing outside the opera and looking for each other and they finally see each other and it really builds the romance. And then they go inside, they're there. And then um, Cosmo is there with his mistress, right? And Cosmo and Loretta see each other after the show and they they talk about how disappointed they are in each other. And then one says to the other, I didn't see you here. And she, and then she says, I don't think I saw you here either, right? You know, so good, uh, good interaction. Right. And the fact that she doesn't really know how she wants to play that or whatever, that is great. And yeah, that whole sequence. And I do love too, that this movie really conveys the like magic of going to the opera. Um, you know, it's not one of these things where it's like, oh, these working class characters who are kind of uncouth or whatever, and they wouldn't get or appreciate the opera, or we're going to make fun of the idea that they went to the opera. Like the opera is beautiful and the characters know that it's beautiful. They appreciate it. They love it. And it, it feeds into the whole romantic sense of the film. Yeah. I just wish they would have left the scene in where they go to visit your dad afterwards. Yeah. That would have been odd. He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't living in New York in 87, so no? they wouldn't have found him there. No. Oh, well. Yeah, they could have been my dad at his place of work at that point in time. But oh. that would have been great. Or maybe if they took a detour to New Jersey and went <laughs> to hang out with young Jason, even better. <laughs> would have been something, wouldn't it? Uh, Josh, we talked about some of these master craftsmen involved. I just want to sh shout them out real fast. Lou Lombardo, legendary editor, did The Wild Bunch, and that's one of the most definitive uh, or influential films ever uh, edited. And uh, he did five Altman movies, you know, as well. And then Dick Hyman was the uh, music supervisor, and he's just played with everybody that there is. So I thought both of those elements added, along with David Watkins' cinematography, he won Best Cinematography for Out of Africa. He's known for his work with Richard Lester. He did Chariots of Fire. And uh, I got this quote out of him. Some critics compare him to Vermeer, the Dutch artist who often illuminates his subject with light refracted through windows because of that bounce light he likes to use. Yeah, it's great. There's speaking of that, I love there's like one little joke where Danny Aiello, Johnny is calling from Sicily as he's at his mother's deathbed. And this is this is before Loretta has met Ronnie and he just calls her at home and they have this very kind of awkward conversation where it's clear that these people don't care about each other really at all. And uh, she can't think of anything to say. And she just tells him like, uh, uh, wear a hat if you're in the sun. And he says, okay, I'll do that. And then it cuts back to him and he's standing there in front of a window with the sun shining on him, not wearing a hat. And I just yeah. kind of love that little moment. <laughs> well, that's the lesson, Josh. Wear a hat if you're in the sun. I don't think that's the lesson, but it is a, a good thing to remember. <laughs> the lesson for me, because I'm bald and I'll, uh, it'll hurt if I don't. Yeah, no, that is a good is a good call. I just don't think that that's the primary message of this film. I kind of think the last thing I wanted to say was, and I kind of talked about this, but the building and the pacing, and I think Jewison and the whole team just did a really great job. And I guess obviously uh, Shanley as well, just as kind of building that pace to a crescendo, much like an opera, Josh. Right. I think this does have a structure like that or like an old fashioned stage musical or or movie musical from like yeah. the 40s or something like that. I mean, they're really capturing that. And that's why I'm saying anything that seems unrealistic or exaggerated in this film, I feel like that's all part of what they're aiming to do with it. And is whether it's Nicolas Cage's performance or the Italianness of it or the coincidences and all that kind of stuff is is part of the tone of the film and what they're going for. And I just think it really all works really well. Do you want to rate this thing, Josh, out of five prosthetic hands or five shiny moons? You tell me. It's your pick. <laughs> yeah, we didn't mention the prosthetic hand, which is great that uh, Ronnie has, because of the most ridiculous reason, he's mad at his brother for five years 
And you think that, you know, Johnny must have cut off his hand himself or something like that. And no, it's because Johnny was talking to him and thus Ronnie became distracted and uh, his hand got cut off in the bread slicer. Really feels like Ronnie's problem. I lost my hand. <laughs> Thank you. There it is. Gotta I was glad that you got that in there. Yeah, yeah you, you got to do it. Do so, it. so well, I mean, yeah, I could do just... my Vincent Gardenia. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> that that is very distinctively him and not every old italian guy ever <laughs> i give this four four out of five prosthetic hands it's a great movie i really enjoy it i'm glad i got to watch it again even though i had seen it not that long ago so uh jason i'd be down to watch it again especially around holiday time josh gets three and a half from me right in that comfort zone baby yeah dave how would you rate this Last year when I watched it, I gave it four, but re-watching it this time, I love this movie. I'm going all the way to five with it. Wow. wow. That is awesome. I think uh, this may be the, it's the season of multiple five-star ratings from Dave Rosen here. It mm. seems that way. Yeah. This movie, I can't think of a single bad thing What about else did it. you give five stars to? I don't even remember. Oh, I think it's uh, it's coming up as I'm yeah. teasing for the future oh. of this, uh, this season, yeah. which future includes Dave's, Dave's favorite movie of all time. So oh, yes. <laughs> pretty sure he's going to give that five stars. Exciting. Yeah. We'll uh, look forward to that. But first, we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Moonstruck. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we have been talking about my pick, which is Moonstruck. And in terms of the legacy of this film, a lot of the people involved here we've talked about before and looked at their future careers, uh, starting with Nicolas Cage. We talked about him in our episode on Matchstick Men. Of course, he's incredibly prolific. And even just since that episode has been in a bunch more movies, um, in terms of more recent stuff, I feel like we should give a shout out to his film Sympathy for the Devil, which is set and shot here in Las Vegas, where he's a longtime resident. And, and I do love that not only does Nicolas Cage live here, uh, but he really embraces like being a Las Vegan. He's made, I think now, like six movies, at least partially in Las Vegas. And he's such a big booster of the town. And I, I love that about him. Uh, the retirement plan coming out later this year when Ashley and her young mother, Sarah, get caught up in a criminal enterprise that puts their lives at risk. She turns to a strange father, Matt, currently living the life of a retired beach bum in the Cayman Islands. Come on, that sounds right up that Nicolas Cage alley for you. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to a very Charlie Kaufman-y sounding movie he's in called Dream Scenario that's coming oh, up. Oh, yeah. Where he plays a man who becomes famous because he appears in everyone's dreams. Oh, that's that, pretty this cool. Is, yeah. This yeah. is probably my most anticipated movie of like the next year or so. All right. Not, not Lords yeah. of War, the sequel to Lord of War that I didn't know people wanted a sequel to. Hey, I, I'll take it. I like Lord of War, actually. <laughs> yeah. Andrew Andrew Nichol, underrated filmmaker. I like Andrew Nichol, Gattaca. But didn't we uh, trade the Lord of War back to Russia so we could get WNBA player Brittany Briner back? I think uh, Nicolas Cage should play Brittany Griner in her <laughs> biopic. <laughs> <laughs> that could be problematic. But if anyone could pull it off, Josh, it's Nicolas Cage, I think. Josh, why didn't you start with Cher? What do you got against Cher, bro? Well, no, I was just saying that I, I was starting with someone that we've talked about before. But of course, Cher is fantastic. Like I said, she's a, so good in this movie that it made me disappointed that she didn't have as much of an acting career as she could have. I mean, she's definitely acted in other films, but it's very sporadic. And a lot of the time, if she appears in a film like the Mamma Mia sequel that we were mentioning, it's basically a glorified cameo. She shows up for a few minutes and it's like, look at Cher, even if she's playing a character. And that's kind of the extent of it. Um, she is in in other films and more substantive roles, uh, most of which I haven't seen, really. I've seen The Witches of Eastwick, which all, is another also big Also, that in Suspect, 1987, all three of these movies. So, right. So, such a big year for her to launch this, this, this big acting career, and it didn't really go that no, way. No, she had already been launched, man. She had done Mask before this. I've mentioned uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. The 80s were a big time of acting for her. She just kind of slowed it down after that, I feel like. Yeah, she did. I mean, I know uh, Mermaids. I think that was one of my sister's favorites uh, growing up. And uh, I haven't seen that. Uh, burlesque, which is, I think, kind of a ridiculous campy thing with uh, Christina Aguilera, maybe. Isn't I just remember also? the song they all did, the Lady Marmalade. Uh, more importantly, Josh, she turned down roles in Thelma and Louise, The Addams Family, 
The Piano and Death Becomes Her. Which of those movies would you have wanted to see her in? I think Death Becomes Her, which, you know, we did an episode on and I did not care for, but I feel like she could have fit in really well with that film. And you would have put her in the Mer- Meryl Streep role, I'm guessing? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Of course, in uh, in Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, she plays Meryl Streep's mother, which mm. makes no sense whatsoever. Um, well, she's like 20 years. I mean, she's much older than Nick Cage in this movie. And Olympia Dukakis is only a few years older than her. So anything's doable here. Right. Yeah. The whole the whole age uh, thing in this film is is ridiculous. Olympia Dukakis is only two years older than uh, Danny Aiello. So it's uh, it's all it's all off. Maybe so, that's what uh, Aiello is much older than her. That's what I think I meant. Ignore the last part of what I said, guys. Yeah, but it is all wonky. I mean, as we've discussed, I think in in other films, like like when we talked about The Graduate or whatever, and it's, you know, the way that these things are played. Um, of course, the most recent role of Cher's that I have seen is uh, her voice work as Cher the Bobblehead in the Bobbleheads movie. Good for you, Josh. I'm going to just move on right now. Uh, <laughs> That's what we all should do from the Bobbleheads movie. <laughs> John Patrick Shanley, Pulitzer and Tony and Drama Desk, I believe all for Doubt, which also got a best adapted screenplay nod. He won, as you said, the Oscar for this. We both really like Joe versus the Volcano, uh, which we watched last night, which he also directed. The other movies that he directed were Doubt, his adaptation of this play, and Wild Mountain Time, which is supposed to be terrible. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is watching watching this and then watching Joe versus the Volcano, which was his directorial debut, both weird. Joe versus the Volcano, super weird. And, and it's great. I think it really, really works. But you can see how in a slightly different approach, these really weird kinds of romance stories would not work. And I haven't seen Wild Mountain Time, but because it had this reputation as being so insanely bad, I did look up like what the crazy plot twists were. And I feel like it's the kind of thing that maybe if it had different actors or if he had approached it differently as a director, and he's only worked very sporadically as a film director, it would have worked. But the weirdness of that one, for whatever reason, in that particular context did not work. But and Joe versus the Volcano is fantastic. Yeah, we both like that. I mean, he wrote the screenplay to Alive in Congo, so he's worked in more mainstream stuff. Danny in the Deep Blue Sea is about to reopen off Broadway with Aubrey Plaza and Christopher Abbott. Yeah, that is quite a cast. Have you ever seen a Shanley play uh, on stage? Uh, no, Josh. My college didn't take me to New York to... Enjoy you could have seen cultural a, endeavors. Yeah. You could have seen a local production of it. I mean, it's possible. Well, I, I already graduated from college, so how could I do that? Yeah. Um, he also, I mean, he's very prolific as a playwright, even though his his movie work is kind of sporadic. He's got another new play called Brooklyn Laundry that's supposed to open in 2024. Um, and you know, perhaps some more of his stuff will be adapted to film. Although given how the response was to wild mountain time, maybe, maybe he's done with movies. No, I think he gets another shot in there. As you said, all these, uh, character actors are just heavy hitters. Vincent Gardino won a Tony award for best supporting actor for the prisoner of second Avenue was nominated for a Tony for best actor in a musical for ballroom. Uh, he had an Oscar nod for best supporting actor for bang the drum slowly uh, he's got an Emmy for Age Old Friends, so he did pretty well. Death Wish, Little Shop of Horrors, The Front Page, Murder, Inc. Olympia Dukakis obviously got her Emmy here. Steel Magnolias, I think most people would also remember her from. And we've actually seen uh, the aunt, Rita, before, Julie Bavasso, as Florence, the mom in Saturday Night Fever. Oh, well, yeah, I think I uh, I didn't make that connection. And Josh, Lewis Gus, who's got that great monologue that I paid homage to in the opening, uh, who plays Uncle Raymond. You might have known uh, him from The Godfather and the James Gray film, The Yards. I like that movie. Nice. Yeah, this was kind of toward the end of Vincent Gardenia's career. He died in 1992 and only had a few more roles after this. But his Emmy that you mentioned was, was later than this. Uh, Limpy Dukakis. Long, long career. She just died fairly recently in 2021. And there was even a feature length uh, documentary about her life called Olympia from 2018, which sounds interesting. Uh, We talked about Danny Aiello before, another very prolific character actor when we did our episode on Do the Right Thing. He also passed away just a few years ago in 2019. And Norman Jewison, we have also talked about, uh, as I said, for In the Heat of the Night, which is another film that I absolutely love and very, very different from this from, you know, 25 years earlier, 
or not 25, uh, 20 years earlier. I can't do math. <laughs> He's a very, very prolific director in multiple genres and is still alive. But uh, the last film he directed was in 2003. Um, I think he's like 97 years old. Now. Yeah. Probably not going to direct a, another movie. But a huge benefactor, mentor, just a major figure, not just in Hollywood, but in the Canadian film industry. So huzzah to our friends up north there. Josh, I like that. You know, we mentioned a lot of these actors and, and going back to Mahoney, who was in Steppenwolf and Dukakis and Gardenia and Ayala, like just a lot of great stage actors. And that, that always works out when you cast them in movies, I think. Right. And I mean, I don't know if Shanley had any influence on the casting per se, but I would imagine that with his stage background, that's something that he would be in favor of. Yes, I would imagine that too, Josh. All right. Anything else you want to say about the legacy of this film, Jason? Josh, John Mahoney, of course, uh, played the father in Ed Burns. She's the one. Where do you rank that on Feel the Burns? <laughs> Man, you know, I feel like Feel the Burns has not come up in a while, and I'm glad that we're bringing that back our non-existent podcast on the work of Ed Burns. Well, I wasn't going to bring it back, but as you remember, Cher specifically asked about it in your interview with her. Yeah, that was <laughs> a really great imaginary interview that I had with Cher where we spent 20 minutes talking about the Bobbleheads movie. And, uh, and Ed Burns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's Moonstruck, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can fall in love with us online and on social media. Yeah, because no one loves us in real life. Uh, I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. Go for Jason is my letterbox. Eat This Comedy is a website. And you can also find us at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on the Twitter X. Yeah, whatever the hell that thing is now. Uh, you can find some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com, including I think the most recent thing on there is my uh, list of first time watches that is got Moonstruck at the top of it. So that's spoiling. Totally. What a spoiler. Yeah. Uh, also at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter X and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd and listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And if I may say really quickly, Josh teased my uh, other five-star movie later this year also has a missing hand. So mm. many amazing connections going on in this season. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of which, what is in our next episode, Jason? Josh, I don't know if there's a missing hand in it, but it is from one of your favorite directors. We're going to a foreign film by Abbas Kiriastami, and it's Where is the Friend's House? So tune in next time for Where is the Friend's House, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.